Welcome uh, to the ninth episode of the Ocean Decade Show. I can't believe that this is already number nine. Um, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gills, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the ocean decade. So yeah, we are more than, definitely more than halfway through, two-thirds of the way through the first year of the ocean decade as we move toward 2030, which seems close and far away at the same time. Um, but with all of Europe off on vacation during at least the month of August, and usually for a longer time than that, it, you, all of us, I think, are just getting bounce back emails from everyone with uh, vacation notifications. Uh, so it's been pretty quiet on the Ocean Decade front recently, but there are some quick news updates that I can uh, update all the listeners on. So at the end of July, uh, the seventh Ocean Decade newsletter was released by the IOC, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission. That's one of our previous um, acronyms of the episode. <laughs> and that newsletter reviewed uh, the Ocean Decade actions that were endorsed in the spring that we spoke about uh, on a previous episode, uh, like the Arctic Regional Action Plan, and reviewed recent a recent publication on ocean literacy within the Ocean Decade and a framework for action. So really cool stuff that when it went over in that newsletter and all these materials are available on the Ocean Decade website for those of you who want to learn more and you can subscribe so that every time they release one, you can get it in, in your inbox. Uh, so despite the vacations, uh, the newsletter makes it seem like a lot's happening around the world and the foundations for change during this decade are being made um, and being laid. And Next, we've had over the course of the summer, some of these first laboratories that the Ocean Decade team has planned focused around each of the goals of the Ocean Decade. Uh, so the next lab is on the predicted ocean and it will be held September 15th through 17th. And then the lab for a clean ocean will take place November 17th through 19th. Uh, so while submissions for the predicted ocean lab are closed, you can still submit your idea to be part of the clean ocean laboratory. If you're doing stuff that relates to a clean ocean, uh, definitely get involved. It's a great way to share your work with a large group of people all around the world who also care about that specific goal. Uh, so while the summer is winding down, the decade is heating up with these laboratories uh, coming up. And so these are the last two for 2021 and then they're planning the ones already for early 2022. Uh, so hopefully by next month's episode, we'll have even more news to report from the Ocean Decade front once all of those out-of-office notifications stop for all of our uh, European colleagues. So ending that kind of news edition on the Clean Ocean Lab, I think, is a great transition to our topic and our guests for today. Um, I've always said that I wanted to use this podcast to tell the human stories of the Ocean Decade and explore unexpected stories. And so I'm really excited about the story we're going to tell today, uh, focused all about fashion in the Ocean Decade, something I never thought that we would cover on the podcast and that I'm so excited that we're going to get to. Uh, I think it's a really interesting topic in reference to the Ocean Decade because it represents these unique angles and audiences that normally wouldn't even hear about something like the Ocean Decade. And I really think that one of the major goals of these next 10 years should be to broaden the horizon of who cares about the ocean and how the general public sees the ocean as interconnected with different industries and sectors. Uh, I think that the, this narrow interpretation of how we view the ocean is changing as a society, that you don't just have to be a marine scientist to care about the ocean, especially with the, the hashtag ocean climate action movement, as that continues to grow and uh, highlight the role of the ocean in climate change. 
but we still have a long way to go in facilitating these conversations, especially within the ocean decade and opening up this UN initiative uh, that is very uh, science at its base, but to be much, much more than that and much bigger than that. I love to think about the decade, you know, as this big umbrella under which all sorts of innovative ocean work can fit under and fashion definitely fits in under that umbrella. And a question for another time and that maybe our guests can answer, are umbrellas fashion? Who knows? That That's something that we might be able to tell over the next 10 years. Uh, we could have ocean umbrellas. Um, but my guest today is a lot like me in a lot of ways, except for probably her uh, crazy attempts at jokes. But uh, she's it's because she's a hyphen. Uh, she's an artist, an activist, a fashion designer, and a great spokeswoman for the role of fashion in the future of the ocean. Uh, and she's great at seeing the gray in between the blacks and whites uh, of the fact that you don't have to just love the ocean or just love science or just love fashion, that you can blend seamlessly into a love of seams and stitches and fashion and fabric overall. Okay, I'm going to try to limit the the fashion puns, but they're just going to come up really naturally here for me. Um, as listeners probably know, I work in shipping uh, in my, my normal non-ocean decade day job, and the ship puns just come out all the time, and so the fashion ones might come out all the time here as well. So apologies in advance for that. Um, but my guest really emphasizes the importance of the intersection between sciences and the arts. And this crucial uh, intersection is really often undervalued, I think, thus far in ocean discussions. So this is where I'm going to stop before I get into even more puns and get fully out of my depth in terms of my knowledge of fashion. Uh, so I'll let Runa introduce herself. Hi, Runa. Thanks for being here today and sharing your knowledge and insight. Thank you so much, Taylor. This is a fantastic podcast and thank you for having me. And I do love your fashion puns. They were beautiful. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll try to find some other clever ways then to, to bring them in, but yeah, stop me if they get too crazy. Um, but first let's start with, you know, who are you and what has been your path to the ocean decade? So I'm a fashion designer by profession and I turned environmentalist. Um, this was because in my profession, I got to see a lot of carbon footprint that was generated within the processes of the industry. This was not just affecting the environment or the climate, but also humanity at large. So one of the reasons why I kind of got into the oceans is because water is intrinsically linked to everything that we do. Apart from us being almost 75% water, we use water in every process, including fashion. And fashion is a $3 trillion industry. And you've got so many uh, textile dyes in the unorganized sector, while most of us just concentrate on the organized sector. But if you look at the unorganized sector, you've got like around 60 to 80% of small organizations that are into, into dyeing and printing. Most of the chemicals that are used get into these uh, waterways that are untreated and eventually kind of erode the entire ecosystem. So while I was working in several organizations, I got to see this. And I realized that if we have to take care of our processes as a fashion designer, we need to do something with the oceans. And I was a part of the first decade for a satellite session at the uh, UN uh, ocean uh, decade that opened up it's for the inspiring and engaging ocean so where i said that the ocean has always been our constant ally and it is time for us to reciprocate so my path is like now is in hopes to mobilize more designers and people to be on the path 
for ocean restoration and its future. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. That's such like a great overview of of your path there and all the different, you know, facets that we don't think about with the fashion industry. And one thing I wanted to to highlight for, I bet a lot of the listeners are kind of like me and are new newbies in the fashion industry. So what did you mean versus organized versus unorganized in terms of the water, water use? So you have a lot of brands that work with other brands that they outsource from other factories from other countries like developing countries But what people do not see is that these factories that have tie-ups with these large brands, like say an H&M, could probably be outsourcing most of its work from another factory that's unheard of. And this could be, uh, this factory could be somewhere uh, which is facing environmental racism because the land is polluted. It's around a landfill. You've got the waters that are polluted and nobody cares. Even the people around there have no voice because they're really, really poor people. So this is what I mean by unorganized sector, because this is something where you, which you don't see. And the governments, um, especially around these areas, do not bother about giving the people the voice or the power to speak about what could be affecting them in terms of the environment. So the unorganized sector is a large contributor because when you have people doing who are actually making things for the fashion industry and are not being noticed, you know, you can and they them, their lives themselves are being in danger. How are they going to take care of the environment on a larger scale? Yeah, it's it's the level of, you know, uh, care that they're able to give, you know, that they're focused first on uh you know, feeding their families and and livelihood. And so the environment doesn't factor in necessarily to their decisions. Uh, But the big brands and companies that are facilitating this unorganized nature of some of the fashion industry and the environmental harm that's going on are the ones that that should be responsible. Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Extremely irresponsible. And the important thing is that they need to know where their compliances lie. And they need to invest in these factories for long term because what happens is in the fashion industry, you have like one season that's probably produced in factory A, but then the company, the brands do not go back to factory A because factory B gives them a better price. So there's, you know, so there's always the skipping around that happens in the fashion industry, which gets to be pretty detrimental because you're not investing in the long run. That's so interesting. So already like, off the bat, so many things are going around in my mind because it's intersecting between environmental issues and human rights issues and and representativeness. And that's one of the big pieces of of the decade is really trying to 
elevate voices that haven't been heard before uh, in these conversations. And so it seems like the fashion industry, it's really ripe for uh, for those sorts of discussions to start happening on a on a broader scale. Yeah, definitely. I do agree with you, Taylor. It's time. The time has arrived and we can't be blind to these things anymore. And a lot more designers are kind of stepping up to it. A lot more brands are stepping up to it. They are moving into the sustainable realm. They're trying to find people who can actually look into the transparency when it comes to supply chains and not just transparency when it comes to making of the garment, but also the processes involved and the most important part, the part of the the seed, you know, where you get your fiber from, because everything, even that is something that I say is really important because there's so much of water being used when it comes to like, uh, you know, like cotton farming. And, and after that, you have the processes that are involved in creation of the fiber and then the weaving and then the making of the garment. So, yeah, so it's time to kind of step up. And this is exactly where science comes into play. Yeah. And this is the, exactly the intersection between what design and science is. And I think like you're a perfect personification of what that is. And you kind of represent what the Ocean Decade is trying to do within your field. Why has been Why has it been so important for you thus far to bring the fashion conversation into the ocean decade that uh, listeners. So, you know, that uh, I had, uh, I did a little bit of online stalking to meet Runa that she and I both contributed to the eco magazine edition uh, that was focused all about the ocean decade, read her article in there and was blown away. And so reached out to her and, and then got her on the show, which is fantastic. But what really inspired you to bring this fashion conversation to the ocean decade? Fashion as an industry was always being spoken about separately. Everyone knew that it was one of the largest contributors when it came to climate change. But I felt that everything is intersected. And there's an intersection even with the oceans and a deep one, because like I said, water is the most important source. And without water, we could, you know, we're not going to survive. So the reason I kind of got into the ocean decade was because I wanted to make sure that arts and science could be merged together where we could mobilize people, get them to understand the processes, uh, encourage them, even designers and micro industries, uh, small scale industries, you know, if they could make small changes within their uh, processes to, in totality, it's going to be colossal. It's not just about the big brands because most of the times I'm questioned about my processes and they've always been asked like how, how do you scale them I'm like this is something that everyone can do and if we do it together it's going to be huge it's going to be a huge impact and this is way, the way we can turn it around for people and the planet so that was one of the reasons I wanted to get into the ocean decade to make sure that fashion has the right place and people understand the impact of fashion on the oceans and not just the environment as a whole. Yeah, I think that's so crucial because, you know, when you go into some big stores nowadays, they have some stuff about like, oh, if you bring your jeans in here to recycle, it can help with that sort of stuff, you know, but having the that land-based conversation, but then thinking about it in terms of the ocean as well. So like we've gone over this a little bit thus far, but what are some of the main ways in which the fashion industry and how things work currently harms the ocean? The fashion industry has various... Um 
if you it, it's a it's a long conversation we could probably speak you know the entire night about this but <laughs> <laughs> to kind of wrap it up with what we have um i'm sure our listeners have already heard about the microplastic pollution that is caused because of synthetics because they break up you know they break up into these really tiny particles and then the fish um uh, mistake them for food and uh, ingest them um so what is it that we could do to mitigate it apart from that you've got like wastage when it comes to processing the garment like uh, like a cotton t-shirt with the kind of washes that it undergoes or even uh, you know like a pair of indigo jeans because it has to be completely faded and washed so this consumes a lot of water you've got a lot of dyes and pesticides even for growing of the cotton when you grow cotton so that you know enters the ground water and water is water and at the end of the day you know it doesn't matter whether it's ground water or from up the, in ocean. the ocean exactly yeah. and then you've got effluents from the dying discharges you've got the transport because you've got uh, factories that manufacture in india and bangladesh and then of course it's shipped by uh, by sea so then there's a lot of uh, there's a global the global warming because of transport Oh, I can talk to you. My main job, like I said, is shipping. I can talk to you all day about shipping. And so, yeah, the the global, how big ships move, yeah, fashion around the world. You, yeah, you'd be in a better position to uh, <laughs> speak about that. We could probably have a session just on that. <laughs> it's it's crazy. It's, it's, a, it's a lot, you know. And then you have like coastal communities that are being affected by this and the ocean debris because of the shipping again. And, you know, like, of course, the landfill, because you have the dyes that sink into the into the soil and then end up into the oceans. So it just seems like a, a laundry list of, <laughs> another fashion pun, a laundry list in the ways in which the fashion industry and how it's built and run currently can harm the ocean. But what what do you think are the ways that the fashion community can can change? And so kind of overall scoping and then, you know, what are what are you doing to we can get more into some of these fabulous techniques that I've read about that make no sense to me. And so I would love for you to better understand them, but better explain them to me. But what are the main ways in which you think that the industry should and could change? I think uh, the industry needs to start questioning its processes. Um, if you can eliminate single-use plastic when it comes to packaging, you, you, you have a huge bonus point on your list. You've got plastic that is used in hangers, in mannequins, in wrapping, you know, apart from... Just all this hidden plastic. Yeah, yeah. and like labels, you know, so this... And uh, buttons, you know, zippers, uh, children's garments. You have the print that is plastic. You call it the plastisol print because it's a plastic print. So if we can think of how you can eliminate plastic in your garment, I think that's a huge way to go. The second thing is, like I said, if there could be investment done for water treatment plants for dyeing units, that's going to help a lot where it comes to recycling of the water. Then we could also, this it would encourage sustain, uh, sustainable consumer behavior. The other thing which I think is really important is recycling of garments and recycling of fibers that could kind of go back into the industry and upcycle them so that they're new products being made. So I think these are like the small uh, 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 small changes that any industry could take up. And it's not that difficult. And that collectively it could make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Exactly, in a collective way. 
that's really, you know, a good, it's always nice to go from like the doom and gloom of how it hurts the ocean and then how we can get better. And it's things that over these next 10 years that it's during the ocean decade that the fashion community can start to have these conversations. And I really think that you're in a great position to, to help lead and facilitate these conversations in part because of, you know, your really innovative techniques that I could just, yeah, I just reading about them was super, super interesting. And so it's a seaweed fashion technique that you mentioned in, in the eco magazine article that I read. Um, so is it suminum gashi? Yeah, it's Suminagashi. Yes, yes. I got so, it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's an ancient technique. So what I do is I try to use a lot of nature based solutions in my design. So the garments that were made were printed by this one technique, which was 12th century uh, Japan in the royal uh, royal courts of Japan. So you had this trough that was filled with water, and they would like sprinkle ink on it and the secret agent was seaweed. Japan and coastal communities have a lot of seaweed. Like <laughs> it's not in short supply right now. Exactly. And this is like 12th century. So, you know, so they would have like the seaweed that would be floating in the trough. And most of it was like powdered seaweed that would uh, coagulate the water. So when you had the inks that were spread on the surface, you could put a fabric on the surface and the inks would transfer itself onto the fabric. So this just way- Just naturally? Just naturally. So, wow. so when I did this, I printed 250 meters of fabric using only 50 liters of water. How much of a reduction is that from you know the normal water that's used in the fashion process? Okay, so for a cotton t-shirt in the processes, you use around 200 to 250 liters. Wow. In just the processes, I'm not talking about the fiber. I'm not talking about the yarn. I'm not talking about the uh, the process that actually takes place when the yarn is in the factory. I'm talking about the completed t-shirt. Wow. That's, that's a lot. And so for American listeners, 250 liters is around 66 gallons. So I just did that quick conversion that's for <laughs> uh, the few Americans that have no idea what a liter is. <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was uh, that was stunning, and that is what I took to the ocean conference that is now that is now postponed. That was to be in Lisbon to showcase what fashion could actually do and how we could use techniques of this sort and make a huge impact. So this was Sumiragashi, and I think a lot more other people are kind of getting into this technique because you save water, you don't have water pollution because you're using seaweed. And the inks are natural inks. So you have them extracted from like Indian madder, turmeric. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. You know, chlorophyll. Yeah, so it's like chlorophyll printing. So you're not using acrylics. And the fabric we used was uh, uh, silk. Okay, so with silkworms. Yeah, but this was ahimsa silk. So ahimsa silk is a technique where uh, ahimsa is basically where you don't kill anything. It is a, uh, it, it was, it's a term coined by Gandhi in India. So uh, this is a technique where the uh, silkworms are allowed to hatch from the from the egg, and they're not boiled. It takes it's a longer process because you, then you get to kind of uh, knot the strands together, but it's a more humane process. Wait, so silkworms are usually boiled in order to make silk? Yeah, so they're all boiled alive. 
So then, oh my strength, gosh, it's very All these sad. Things I didn't know. <laughs> so they boiled alive, and then so that the strand unravels slowly. The reason they don't let them hatch is because the entire strand in its entirety would break. It makes it very difficult to attach. But now this technique allows the strand to be broken. But you know, you might have a little bit of you know like a bit of slub on your garment, but that's fine. But that's okay. We're gonna make sacrifices that we let the silkworms live, and we're more sustainable, and and I'm okay to have a little bit of that on on my shirts and dresses. <laughs> exactly right. So, where did you first learn about this seaweed fashion technique? How did you learn about it? Um, this was in Pondicherry, which is a coastal community in the south of uh, India. So you have a lot of um, paper factories. And this was a cottage industry, which was done by one of the small, you know, paper mills. And they were they were kind of using the seaweed with the water. And I was like, what is this? But they kept using acrylic inks. And that's the way they were printing their papers. So, but this was years ago. So when I thought about it, you know, these are things that you kind of remember and they kind of stay in your subconscious. And over time, they, you know, suddenly it just pops up and you're they like, They bubble oh into gosh. an idea, yeah, in your mind. Exactly. And then I started doing some research and I found out this always did exist. But why aren't we using it? Because if you look at indigenous techniques and even ancient nature-based solutions, they're always there, including like chlorophyll printing that I spoke about. It's been used by the native Indians, but we never take it across because we're so used to, uh, you know, like the ready-made urban lifestyle. And that's definitely something that we need to talk about in terms of the ocean decade as well is, you know, it's not always about progress board and new technology and new things. It's sometimes about going back to the way things were done before and utilizing new technologies to make them more efficient. But the idea that, you know, this amazing, you know, 12th century Japanese technique and then chlorophyll printing and all of these things that have existed in the past and that we can, they're kind of having a renaissance, I think right now, as the fashion industry thinks through its, its place in the sustainability world overall, and then ocean sustainability in particular. I agree. I completely agree with you. So how do you see, so uh, for those of us, AKA me, who doesn't know, how is the seaweed printing different than chlorophyll printing. So what are the differences between those? So chlorophyll printing, there are two ways you could probably do it. One is the extraction of the chlorophyll. So what we did was we would uh, visit discarded flower markets. There's certain flowers like the rose that give out a really you know nice hue. You've got flowers like the periwinkle that gives out a black hue when you know when you use it or even the hibiscus. The, hibis, the red hibiscus gives you an indigo. It's it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And uh, this, again, has been around for like, I think, decades. And I think there was a German scientist who came up with this one technique where he used chlorophyll to coat fabrics and use the energy from the sun to print onto the garment or the fabric. How fascinating. It's like It's just like photography. It's as it's as good as that. And if you have a certain kind of a mordant, you know, to fix it, it would stay for a very, very long time. It's, you know, it's it's good as new and you don't have to worry about it. The seaweed printing on the, uh, the seaweed printing, on the other hand, is coagulation of water. 
and so that you have it uh, you have it contained and you can splash the inks on the surface so that they don't sink and the inks get transferred onto the surface of the fabric so it's almost like renewable energy <laughs> <laughs> so it's renewable energy in their sun photography and printing like my mind is just being blown right now and thinking about all the different ways that you know, and these are just some of the techniques and I'm sure that there's other ancient ones out there that we haven't rediscovered, you know, from different parts of the world that could be a really fascinating way to not only think about, you know, ways to increase the presence of indigenous voices and indigenous cultures in the fashion industry, which is uh, an important, you know, we could have a, like we said, we could have a whole separate topic about that. I feel like we're just like finding threads that we could go down forever, but it's, it's about, you know, there's so much left to discover and rediscover, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Seriously. Oh, if the icebergs don't all melt, I won't bring it too negative, but. <laughs> no, let's not do that. <laughs> let's not go down that route. Um, so there were so many wor- like words and phrases when I read that Eco Magazine article and some of your others that I looked through that I didn't understand. (laughs) But there was one that I thought was just fascinating. And I think captured the way that you look at the intersection and the overlap between arts and sciences is this bio couture. So where, how did you come up with that? What what does that word mean to you? So bio couture was something that actually popped into my head when I had this one uh, project that I did with Oshani Global. So Oceana Global is this NGO where they kind of work uh, using arts and uh, ocean restoration. So I, it was when I was kind of walking by on the coast of Half Moon Bay, I saw this, um, I saw this algae and it kind of coated the entire, uh, the entire beach. And I kept looking at it every day and I was like, there's something to this. I don't know what it is. There's something to this. So I can't. Or ideas cooking in your brain over time. <laughs> so then I walked by probably a week later and I picked it up and it had this, you know, it was a, like a matted sheet of fabric. And I had my Google Lens and my Google Lens said it was cyanobacteria. So I decided to look it up. And cyanobacteria got to be one of the world's living fossils, basically, and one of the first oxygen producers on our planet. And I was like, oh, my gosh, why don't we use cyanobacteria in garmenting? You know, it's it's an algae. It's it's formed because of human activity, because of the uh, because of nitrogen, higher nitrogen levels. And at the same time, it could be invasive it could be bad for the ecosystem but it also has a very important role to play i tried testing it in various ways as i would as a designer and i found that cyanobacteria is fire resistant it doesn't burn wow (laughs) you wouldn't necessarily think that something that evolved in and near the ocean would care about fire resistance but that's that's fascinating fascinating it just wouldn't burn and I was like, oh, my gosh, why is there a way we could probably use this in, you know, safety vests? So, yeah, just a really practical thought. Yeah, not even beautiful fashion thought, just a practical fashion yeah, thought. Or even like, you know, uh, 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 by places that are affected by fire where we could coat the walls with it because it has huge water absorbency apart from it being fire resistant. 
anyway so going forward um these were all the thoughts that kind of went into my head and of course they were more scientific in nature and i had to work on my design aspects so i worked with the fabric the cyano the cyanobacteria fabric i processed it using only saline and brackish uh, water and started um sculpting clothes out of it so when i sculpted these garments and i had like light passing through it had this ethereal feel it looks so beautiful it was like the fabric of the oceans and i was like this is biocouture and that's how it started you're painting such a beautiful picture i sometimes am so remiss that on a podcast you know we can't show images but i just i hope that that people google and look this up because it's just uh you're painting a beautiful picture of what this looks like and what it and then the implications behind it of what it can mean and the idea that couture can be bio couture you know you don't have to be unsustainable or have an uncircular economy in the way that you you enjoy fashion then it was the same thing that i do the lloyd's register where i use cb to make an entire garment so we spoke about the seaweed revolution and basically how seaweed could um, you know solve world hunger by 2050 so again it was fashion as activism to advocate for policy change so you can you can head to my website you have all the images there so if anyone's interested you would be able to see the cyanobacteria and the seaweed collection that's fascinating so one thing that pops into my head is you know for for people like you or who are such a hyphen you know you do all these things and you're thinking in really innovative ways what have your peers in the fashion industry thought about your your ideas and your way of viewing the industry and its integration with with ocean science and ocean health i met some fantastic people who are on the same wavelength and who are really keen on making a huge difference when it comes to the environment um and help impact it in a positive way so uh hopefully in the future there should be a coalition of designers who want to kind of merge the science with their designs and uh get better solutions out work with nature based solutions work with indigenous people indigenous techniques coastal people teach them a new trade because uh, there was another project project that was done where we had all this ocean debris of the uh fishing nets so the women were taught so you had the men who collected it and this was again in the south of india so the men collected it and the women were taught how to make bags out of it which was again repurposed and sold into the fashion industry so we didn't have the nets that were melted and made back into yarn because you know so that creates another byproduct of carbon but we didn't want that but we used the existing nets and rather than it ending up in the landfill again or you know being discarded in the ocean on people not knowing what to do with it we made beautiful bags that were sold back into the fashion industry and the women had an alternative trade so we i hope to you know get a lot more designers working towards causes like this and seeing how we could be innovative because that's what the arts is and what fashion is it's all about innovation exactly and i love this idea of you know a coalition of of fashion designers who care about the ocean you know so are there any international groups or initiatives that are currently working on this or is this like this specific intersection between fashion and ocean are there any groups out there doing anything like this or would this be a completely kind of new new idea 
There are a lot of groups that are working with the environment as a whole and the oceans get to be a part of it. But I don't I don't know of anyone who's working separately for the oceans except for a few brands like who are recycling the uh, ocean nets and making them into filaments that could be again used in the fashion industry. Yeah, so I think it's a real you know uh opportunity that to take advantage of over the course of this decade of developing you know a fashion network or coalition that can uh that specifically talks about the ocean so yeah we'll we'll get that started up and then i'll have you all on to talk about it later once you've taken over the world because i have no doubt that 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 group will <laughs> <laughs> and so uh kind of going back up and broader because we've talked a lot about all these different facets of the fashion industry and how it can interweaves. Oh, there's another one and connects to the ocean decade. Um, but for you, you know, from your perspective, I asked this to all my guests, but I'm really kind of interested to hear what you have to say about it. Um, and speaking of the ocean decade overall, what do you, once we reach 2030, what do you think would be a successful decade according to you from your perspective? You look back and you say, we accomplished this over this time. And so I think that we were successful. For me personally, I think a successful decade is when we can mobilize people from different fields and get them to understand that the oceans are to be respected. You have the oceans respected in various cultures. In some cultures, they call uh, they look at the ocean as their father. In some cultures, they look at the ocean as their mother. In some cultures, they don't realize that the ocean is so uh, interlinked with their lives. But if we could get people from all fields and get them to realize that they need to respect oceans, then we are probably moving in the right direction. Because like I said, like I said, that the ocean is our ally and it is time to reciprocate. So with this decade, I hope that we could get policymakers, governments, uh, the civil society, uh, the NGOs, private firms to kind of work together and make laws that and create a path, you know, to a more equitable future where nobody's less left behind and especially with the oceans. I think that's, yeah, exactly a way to think about it is that umbrella that I brought up at the beginning, you know, is bringing all those people under it. Um, and so, yeah, a non-serious question, but are umbrellas fashion? I know that I've been wondering this now the whole time since I made my joke at the beginning, but are umbrellas fashion? You mean the practical umbrella or the umbrella that you're talking about? <laughs> yes, a practical umbrella. Do you think... <laughs> Do you think they can count as part of a of fashion course. accessory? A parasol. Real, we're getting real <laughs> practical here. Oh, parasol. Yeah, you're thinking about walking mm -hmm. down Parisian mm -hmm. streets mm -hmm. back in the day. <laughs> we'll make seaweed parasols next that we'll have. We'll do a whole head-to-toe <laughs> head outfit. Oh, the cyanobacteria one, so you don't have to be worried about the wild forest fire. Let's not go into bad jokes. I'm sorry. That was a really bad one. Oh, or I'm thinking about the the um, bacteria that lights up, you know, you, that you have the, and so then you can glow at night and then you, you get back to that safety aspect and you aren't going to get hit by cars if you go on runs at night. Oh, we're just getting into to craziness here, but <laughs> it's been... No, it's a great idea, Taylor. I think I'm going to really think about this. It's a fantastic we'll trademark idea it. to use bioluminescence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing well, to do. It's it's difficult. It's difficult, but I'm sure it's not impossible. I think that that's the, the great sentiment of these next 10 years is trying to th think that that might be hard, but it shouldn't be impossible. You know, and that's if you go into the ocean decade with that attitude from whatever 
field you work in, if you come to it from that approach, then I think that we'll have a successful decade because it's people asking, well, why not? Like, why can't we try that? And I think you're an expert at, at doing that within your field. Thank you so much. Yeah, I look forward to a really successful decade too. It's going to be exciting. It's already interesting. We had so many people uh, sign up for the satellite sessions. I'm looking forward to the second one and hopefully I'm going to be a part of the third one where I could help people realize and create these, you know, like be a part of this chlorophyll printing that I'm speaking about. I know how to actually do it. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So yeah, where can the audience go to learn more about you and your work and directly how you're going to be involved uh, with some of the next step decade things? So you'll be in some of the next laboratories. And then if we ever have a UN Ocean Conference in person next year. Um, I'll definitely be there for the UN Ocean Conference. Uh, a lot of my work can be, uh, take. you could take a look at my website, which is www.runaray.com I try to update it as often as I can but I'm also on Twitter as Ray Runa and on Instagram as Runa Ray so it's very simple my name is Runa Ray and it's probably everywhere so <laughs> it's simple you just type in Runa Ray you would be able to see a few things that have been done and yeah I look forward to being of uh, uh, being of help and some use for the ocean decade. Yeah, I think that you're gonna that you're such a great spokesperson for the intersectionality that needs to be represented in the decade. And thinking about not just the science that we need for the ocean we want. That's one of the taglines, you know, of the, of the ocean decade. But the one that I tend to prefer is the the ocean we want. You know, just thinking about defining what that is. And I think that. The fashion industry needs to have a lot to say about defining what the ocean we want is and can also do a lot to make sure that the ocean we have doesn't end up full of dyes and full of microplastics. No, it's very true. Like like you spoke, what you said was very true. The hidden, the hidden secrets, you know, when it comes to all these small things that we really don't notice. I mean, right now, even when I'm sitting at the table and talking to you, I can see I can see so much plastic around me. It just doesn't have to be fashion, but, you know, everything that contributes to fashion, it's just around me. I can see it on my table. I think almost, you know, even from my phone cover to the pen that I'm having in my hand, it's difficult to the spiral binding that's there in the notebook. How are we going to solve this? And unless we get, unless there's transparency, unless we get people to understand the uh, and have them to have a voice and to educate people, the consumer, to educate the consumer and get them to ask many questions, even if you're in a store, you know, but to ask questions, you need to know the subject. But I think it's going to be talks like what you're having, which is so important because the larger the outreach, uh, greater the mobilization. Yeah, and it's helping that people see themselves in the solution and see themselves as part of the ocean decade. And that's what trying to do is trying to uh, bring all these different conversations to head. And so thank you so much for for joining me today and, and educating me about fashion, which I love to wear, but have known very little about except for my viewings of Project Runway late at night. So I really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise and your passion and I can't wait to, to follow your career and, and wear some chlorophyll printed clothes very soon. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next month.